From WXCI 91.7 in Danbury, this is Public Reading Club, a radio program dedicated to discussions about books, writing, reading with writers and book people. Your host is Matt Caputo. This is episode eight of the Public Reading Club. It's really uh, amazing that we even got this far. It's been my intention to use this show really to discuss stories and books and uh, writers that I come across and invite as many of them I can to visit us in the studio and occasionally Zoom with some of them. We have a really good show ahead today. David Rich is joining us to read from his book, The Mirrored Palace. David is... Uh, a screenwriter with uh, many years of experience and the author of uh, two previous uh, thrillers called Caravan of Thieves and Middleman. Uh, he spent the early part uh, of his career in Hollywood and he wrote screenplays for feature films like Renegades, which starred Lou Diamond Phillips and Kiefer Sutherland. And uh, he wrote episodes of uh, MacGyver and Stargate SG-1 and uh, several plays and he does teach here in the MFA program at Westcon so it was um, really cool to connect with him and to uh, have him on the show to read some of his work I enjoyed it and I enjoyed chatting about writing with him and then later on if you stick around we have a very special guest he's the first um, guest that's not really a writer he's done some writing in his life but he's he is really a reader. His name is Ron Evans, and he is a Westcon graduate, and he recently um, got himself caught up on every book Stephen King has ever read. So he's part of the Constant Readers Club, uh, I guess unofficially, um, and he's going to come in to discuss his experiences reading Stephen King and some of his um, favorite and his, his least favorite uh, books by the master. So it, it'll be great um, to have Ron come in. He's a big supporter of the show, and I wanted to get I want to get readers on. And uh, again, the show um, I'm really trying to start gearing it now towards maybe um, articles people could read online. So I have a very special guest coming down the pipeline in early September um, with a nonfiction background, and I'll tell you a little more about him at the end of the show. But uh, he's a prolific magazine writer, and he's got a new collection out of his um, you know, great long-form pieces. And I think it is going to be a fun episode to have. Um, so that'll be coming up sometime in early September. But today, the focus will be on David Rich and uh, him reading from his book, The Mirrored Palace, and a conversation with reader Ron Evans uh, about um, Stephen King's entire library. So it's a, a really cool show, and I want to encourage people, if anybody in the Westcon community um, has written something, if they've just released a book, you're, you're welcome to come on this show and read. And that has um, really been my message um, all along, is that if anybody in the MFA program or even students that are just undergraduate writing majors that have some new writing out or articles, possibly a book, um, you're welcome to come on the show and discuss it. I love talking about writing, and I love hearing facts, and uh, so it's great. And like I said, we're going to focus a little bit on nonfiction. So our first guests that focus on nonfiction will be coming up in the episodes to come. But right now we have David Rich, MFA teacher here at Westcon, and a prolific writer of novels and screenplays, 
and it's a great chat. Check you guys at the bottom of the show. Welcome back to the Public Reading Club. Our guest today is David Rich, and he will be the first person to ever read some of their work on our show. It was uh, a pleasure getting to know him a little bit, uh, not only earlier today, but through Facebook and stuff like that. He is a, a teacher and a mentor here in the Western Connecticut State University MFA program. Um, he's written several novels and number of screenplays uh, for films like Renegade, wrote for Stargate SG-1, um, and MacGyver, which was one of my all-time favorite shows. So it's really special to have David Rich here to read a little bit from his uh, 2021 novel, The Mirrored Palace. David, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about the the piece you're going to read and kind of give us the backstory, if you would. Sure. So The Mirrored Palace is about uh, Richard Francis Burton, who's one of the most famous explorers in history. He most famous for discovering the source of the Nile. But he had many other adventures. And uh, he's also famous uh, for translating the Arabian Nights, for translating the Kama Sutra, and many others. He could speak, they say, 40-some languages. He was a great swordsman, a great marksman, and uh, a great ladies' man as well. And for years I'd been fascinated. You know, how do you tell? They, they made a movie called Man of the Moon, uh, Mountains of the Moon about him. And there were TV, BBC TV series about him. But I was looking for a story about him. He'd gone on the Hajj. The Hajj is the pilgrimage every Muslim is obliged to partake in once in a lifetime. And he disguised himself as a Muslim, which is very strictly fair about him, And you'd be killed if you were discovered to be an Englishman. Sure. So he... But it wasn't, it wasn't uh, dramatic enough to tell it as a movie or as a novel, just as it was. There's a, a three-volume journal he left behind with every detail. He was an incredible uh, anthropologist in that way. And then one day I came across a story written by his niece that he had fallen in love. The love of his life was an a Afghan woman. Wow. And when her parents discovered the affair, they killed her because she'd fallen for an infidel. Wow. And I said, well, that's the start of an Arabian Nights tale. <laughs> and what can I do with it? And so that was the inspiration for the book. Um, and it took a long time. At first, I tried to pitch it as a movie. It was a big project. Now we've, the movie rights have been optioned to the book, so we'll wow. see. So, but... Uh, and uh, then it was a question of building the people around him. And there were complications. Burton wrote this elaborate journal, as I said, and, and how do you uh, depict Burton's journey on the Hajj and the characters he meets without plagiarizing him? Right. Right? He, he, I'm, I haven't been on the Hajj, and I'm not likely to be. So... I had to do it in a way that uh, the people who had the drama with hot, with uh, Burton after his death uh, went into the journal, and one of them who knew Burton and loved him uh, refuted it and came up with a new version. They discovered a secret manuscript that Burton had allegedly written 
that told the real story of the Hajj. And so the piece I want to read today, uh, Burton's along on the Hajj, and he's been betrayed. He's gone after the Hajj to a fest in Medina at uh, Prince Rashid's palace, and he's been exposed as an Englishman. Wow. And uh, this means death, but Prince Rashid... Burton is very clever, and he convinces the prince to give him a few days. And the prince says, well, I'll give you a few days, but it's in the pit. And they, no one's ever survived the pit. But, you know, if what you say is true, then, uh, and I'll give you, you know, four days for it to happen, <laughs> uh, we'll pull you out if you're still alive. Um, so this is the piece. You ready? Sure. Go ahead. Okay. Barzuki had betrayed me cleverly with a dollop of truth to sweeten the fear. To be accused was to be condemned. And so the prince ordered me to be slowly roasted, as was his right and his obligation. Impostors, malevolent or not, could not be tolerated, and no opportunity to declare that could be neglected. On the back side of the palace grounds, we followed our shadows courtesy of a sharp half-moon across a barren yard, bordered on three sides by a stone wall with curved in a wide arc from the edges of the palace kitchen. The wall was about eight feet high, but it wasn't going to spread its shade enough to help me. Though I had no dreams to condemn me, my colored robe had been stripped away and I was to be cast into the pit. A guard, one of four, gestured for me to sit. I could not see the bottom and so imagined it had none. Has anyone been rejected at the River Styx? Certainly not on the basis of merit. If you were sent back, would life, no matter how miserable, seem like heaven? Survival, I knew, was not a matter of motivation or determination, and no, it wasn't destiny either. I would struggle against death as long as I could, as all men would, each to his own limit. Survival balanced on the thin edge of chance. A guard took my right arm, another my left, and they meant to lower me inside. I thought that was a gentle approach for a nasty punishment. So did Bashir. In his hissing, thin, and always surprising voice, he said, Drop him. The guards didn't hesitate. When I recovered and looked up, his face filled the space, blocking the light of the moon, and though I couldn't make out his features, I could feel his nasty slit eyes and sneering lips radiating a midday hatred. He said, We roast English pigs and the the vultures eat them. His face was removed and a metal grate was slid in place. There was no time to dote on Bashir's animus. I felt around for a sharp rock and began digging a hole about a foot in diameter and just a few inches deep in the middle of the floor. I stripped off my robe and then my shirt, which which was made from cotton, and redonned the robe. Using four stones, I stretched the shirt across the hole. I called out as humbly and kindly as I could. Hello? If it may be permitted... Please, may I be allowed to have a cup? A voice replied, Each day you will receive one cup of water. But I would like to have the cup, just the cup now, please. Perhaps I heard mumbling. Perhaps it was just the sound of the wind sneaking onto the palace grounds. There was no wind down there. Legs spread so not to disturb my shirt. I sat against the wall. Eventually a clattering sounded above and the cup dangling from a rope descended. I whispered a thank you and placed the cup in the hole underneath my shirt. It was chilly down there, which only made me think about change and making things last and how people fear one and disdain the other. 
I fell asleep. The sun, dripping silently down the wall of the pit, woke me. The shirt was damp with dew, and the cup beneath it held a few drops. I wrung out the shirt into the cup, drank what little there was, and put the damp shirt over my head. I tied the cup to the rope and rattled it, hoping they would fill it right away. They didn't. The sun found me, so I hid under my shirt, eyes closed, visions of the past, no dreams, the air heavy, the air still, the air heavier, the air pressed by the sun, compacted, the air heaviest, breath won't come in, won't flow out, eyes closed, open, the sun seeped like sludge across the floor, eyes closed, eyes open, eyes closed, where were the skulls, the fingers and toes? I took this to mean they used the pit often and so kept it tidy. I had prayed all across the desert and into Mecca and never meant a word, never believed I couldn't. You can pray for the sun to rise and set, for the moon to wax and wane, even the capricious wind. You can pray for life, it's been granted. Health is a shadow, and for love, pray to yourself. The best prayer, the only prayer, certain to be answered, and the answer is certain. By each and every god is the prayer for death, for barzukis, for mine. There was no reason, no possible tale I could tell wherein I wanted the prince's death, the de his death, which was a trigger for my own. And I knew, I know, that every prayer is only a prayer to time, a prayer for a death now. Any death is just a prayer for an alteration in time, very often a just adjustment to time. Eyes open, the sun dripped upward, just as slowly, slower, drip, 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 eyes closed, eyes open, drip, closed, open, drip, closed, open, drip, up, it climbed the wall and out of the way it came, right in through that metal grate, close, open, drip, close, open. The cup rattled down. I drained it, fearful of spilling any if I hoarded, and detached it for the next morning's dew. The visitation of the voices waited until the second night, many voices, never Lita, never Hodgson. My father speaking his disgust, his anger, Isabel filled with hope, this officer and that, fellows and superiors, many women, no friends, poets in English, Farsi, Arabic, Pashto, French, Italian, a jumble of sense battling nonsense. Barzuki's voice came, Darwish, Richard Francis Burton, Lieutenant Burton, it's me, your friend. You fooled the Sharif of Mecca, foolish you. That was dangerous, but I knew it was I who tricked you. Many times, many times, poor inept Omar Barzuki, robbed by thieves in Suez, I waited, came out of a shop, opened my purse in front of them and counted the coins. I walked between buildings, luring them just as I lured you. Why did you kill Ferris? I said. But Suez was not the first time we met. Ferris. Think, Lieutenant Burton, who helped you, who pushed you along your journey. Think, Darwish, think of Cairo, the Wakala, a drunken Darwish and a drunken Tersh, Turk. I looked up and a face appeared. One hand covered the left eye and the hair was wild, falling over the face, obscuring the other eye. I spirited you to a, the Greek quarter and fetched your belongings. Just an eye patch and a haircut, Barzuki said. You're not the one who is a master of disguise. It's me. It's me. Ferris, why did you kill Ferris, I said. To protect you, to make sure you reach this moment. Ferris was not a threat. 
I must go now, Lieutenant Burton. We won't meet again. Again, the sun melted across one wall. I drank my dew and covered my head. Ali's voice drifted down. I did not believe it and did not trust it and did not look up. Darwish, Darwish, oh Darwish, please show a sign that you're still alive. I would not be tricked. Oh, Darwish, I don't care what they say about you. I am still your servant. Barzuki and the prince are like brothers, reunited now, spending every minute together. The print is enthralled, they say. How can I tell him? Darwish, please. I removed the shirt, and the long candle of light embedded in the wall made me squint as I looked up. Ali was there, or rather, I saw Ali there. Run, Ali. They'll kill you after they kill me. Run now. I want to help you. Maybe there will be clouds tomorrow. I tried to chuckle, but the noise I emitted sounded more like my death rattle than a chuckle. Run, Ali. I release you. I will leave when you are released. What day is it, I said. This is your third morning in the pit. Are you going to die, Darwish? Run, Ali. I'll find you. The sun oozed across the floor. I dozed, I woke, I dozed, I woke, eyes open, eyes closed, eyes open. The sun met the opposite wall and dripped upward. Beneath the thin, clean, sun-painted line, a rock I hadn't noticed before appeared, red, reddish, flat on top, shaped like an arrowhead, two black dots on the side facing me, the color of the cliffs between Alhamra and Mecca. I could not close my eyes. The black dots blinked. I wanted to blink. My eyes would not close. How did it get into this pit? What previous tenant brought this black dotted red rock facing me out of place? The sun teased the wall, each drip revealing more of the red intruder, coiled in layers in a nook, and sketched along its back white rectangles lined in black. My legs straddled the hole in the middle of the floor, my water hole. My foot was only a foot away from the arrowhead. The black spots blinked. Eat or be eaten. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the fangs and venom of outrageous fortune or to take arms. What arms? The black spots were not seductive, but they were temptation itself. Temptation to return the shirt to my head and wait to lose the name of action. The sharp-edged rock I'd used to dig the hole lay near my right hand, which felt stiff and clumsy and slow. But I slid my hand, it oozed, too, onto the rock, and let my fingers search for the sharpest edge. None felt sharp enough. His head was already in the shade. What would he do when the light evaporated? I wasn't certain I'd be able to see him at all in a few minutes. Would time stop if I prayed for it? Slowly, I bent my knee, drawing my foot away from the arrowhead. The sun reacted and withdrew further. My other foot inched back. Was he as hungry as I was? The arrowhead moved sl slowly, and an unending cord of white ranked rectangles lined in black slid toward me. I could not move without commotion and thought I would lose my balance if I tried to jump aside. The arrowhead entered the shallow pit I dug. It turned to my right, the body coiled in the pit, the white spots circling on each other. The eyes no longer faced me. The sun backed up the wall like a coward. The snake settled in the pit, comfortable between my frozen legs, and I tried not to shiver with each deafening clang of time. 
Shirt in my left hand and rock in my right, I pounced, slammed the sharp edge of the rock at the base of the arrowhead and put all my weight on it, rocking from side to side and hoping it was cutting through the mouth opened with a strange yearning. It closed and opened. I pressed down, digging deeper. The body whipped around at my arms. I kept my weight pressing down until I could feel the grit of the floor, and in one motion I swept the head against the wall. The mouth still opened and closed. It was dangerous still. I threw my shirt over it. The body still twitched, too. The dead snake had more energy than I did, and I thought if I waited for it to stop, I might fall asleep and never wake. Using the sharp rock, I tore two creases in the skin at the neck and peeled the skin back just far enough for me to dig my teeth in. David Rich, reading from his 2021 novel, The Mirrored Palace, on 91.7 WXCI and streaming on WXCI.org. David, a little bit about Burton. How much of his life has kind of been morphed into uh, maybe maybe Paul Bunyan levels of, of truth <laughs> or not? Well, actually, he's one of the rare ones. It's not. His wife did an interesting thing. Um, he wrote voluminously. He wrote a lot of stuff, and, and some was published and some wasn't. When he died, she started a bonfire, which figures in the book, burning his papers. Wow. And, and one of the main characters in the book is, is, arrives, and he wants to get the journal that comprises, you know, that this is part of, from her. Uh, she wanted to hide some of his writings. Because he'd done, he'd, he'd translated the Kama Sutra. You know the Kama sure. Sutra? So he'd also translated something called The Scented Garden, yes, which is a gay version of that. <laughs> and she didn't want... I don't... There's a lot of talk about what he was in that way. I looked at a lot of evidence. It looks to me one way, but one never knows about anyone. Right. And, and she didn't want that. She wanted to protect his image. She was a Catholic. He was not really a Catholic. Right. She was very devout. He was probably a Sufi to the extent he was anything yeah. that way. Um, so, uh, but his, his legend, he took a spear through the cheek on his mission, one of his missions to Africa. Was he scarred for life? Or? He had a scar, you know. Uh, he, I mean, then he had this legendary battle over the, in the search for the Nile he got sick, and his partner, a guy named Speak, betrayed him and, and took all the credit. And then Burton sued back in England. It was a big scandal. Uh, there's a lot of stories. One story is uh, he fell in love with a nun in India. Wow. And uh, he decided he wanted to run away with her. So he got a pal. who They were in the British Army. And uh, they were going to sneak in and get her at the, at the convent. And the pal snuck in, and the pal went to the wrong room <laughs> and got the mother superior. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And I think, I, I think um, when a writer like you who's, I mean, if you've written one episode of MacGyver, and I think you've written a couple. Yeah, a couple. Uh, yeah, you're working with an iconic character. Yeah. What, what was it that drew you to this historical fiction where it's, you know, it, y y your creativity is free to wander, but there are these boundaries. 
there are these lines you have to stay in. When you write MacGyver, that character is set. Yeah. You have no leeway. You really have lines. Much stronger lines than you have with this. That character said, I'll tell you what happened is is, uh, I wrote my first MacGyver, and I was friends with uh, the line producer, a guy named Michael Greenberg. And and, and, uh, so he didn't work with the writers mainly, but he took my script and he went through and he crossed out some lines. He said, you know, MacGyver would say it this way. And I was thrilled that he, I took it as he was doing me a big favor. And, and I thanked him and he, he said, uh, I, I said, you do that for everybody, that's not your job. He said, most of the writers don't want it and then we end up changing it anyway on our own. Right. Uh, that character set, you've got to write it their way. You have no leeway. So when you do something, you pick out a Burton or I've picked out a, I'm sort of tinkering with a, a famous knight from the Middle Ages. Interesting. Uh, you can do anything you want. You can make, so there's a lot of freedom in that way. Let me ask you something that we asked some previous guests, one of them being Peter Blauner. Fictional characters out there that you've encountered through your life uh, as a reader, mm-hmm. um, at this stage of your career, if, let's say you had to, not if you wanted to, you had to do it, if you had to pick one fictional character that maybe was started by some other writer mm-hmm. who who's, who's dead, let's say, mm-hmm. uh who would you pick to continue writing? Because you've, you've, you've picked up MacGyver, right? I mean, when you wrote it, you didn't sure. invent MacGyver. Oh, that's an interesting question. And uh, it was somebody who's a recurring character, I take it. Um, you know, like a Spencer or a... Yeah. Well, I give the obvious answer. Although, I, you know, I wouldn't do it. Is, is you wouldn't do Philip Marlowe because you could never come close. And there are so many people who are trying. Who are trying. Mm-hmm. And then no one's coming close. So that would be a terrible mistake. Um, I feel like this uh, mm-hmm. mirrored palace here is like, again, I, I hope you take it as a compliment. Is sure. it, It's like a Max Allen Collins kind of approach to fiction and, and history mm-hmm. and, and kind of merging it to make this kind of adventurous story. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a... Right, it's a hybrid in its way. You know, you're going to take it and you say, I'm going to do what I want. And uh, I think that's the power of fiction. It is. You know. It's the fun. Yeah. It's why you write. That's why I had to write it. I, you know, I, I couldn't wait any longer. I love, I, I, you know, I don't get totally caught up in these kind of historical thrillers. But I'll tell you, there's, it, it, it I started to understand the power of the historical novel, the historical fiction, um, when Jerry Stoll released I, Fatty. Oh, which don't was, know it. It's his novel about the life of Fatty Arbuckle. Uh-huh. And it's, it's, you know, at times a very sad, you know, type of a thing, which is really just based on Fatty's life. And I think I even understood the power of it further when... Ace Atkins also has a has a book about Fatty Arbuckles. Uh, it's one of his early novels. Why the, the name isn't coming to me right now? But it's one of his early novels about the the alleged rape scandal sure. that um, Fatty Arbuckle was involved in. Uh, Devil's Garden. Don't know that either. And it was about the night, the September nineteen twenty one incident in San Francisco. 
uh, there's a party at some hotel suite. Know Arbuckle it. gets gets yeah. caught up in the whole thing. Um, let me ask you something. As a writer, uh, and obviously we can approach it cynically and say, hey, it's a big category, sells a lot of books. What what draws you, who's done so much in fiction, what, what draws you into, like, taking somebody who existed and, comp- you know, creating a new story for them? First of all, you, you look at the circumstances. Is there drama there? Is there something really unusual? Is there some great you know, meaning you can draw from it without a lesson. I hate lessons, but you can draw. There's some moral choices somebody had to make or got into a situation that's awful. And then you start to research it. Like there's this medieval thing. I don't want to say who it is, but it's a knight. And I'd read years ago, my wife was reading some historical novel. And she said, you might like this. And I'd heard of the guy it was about. And I read the novel and it was awful. Wow. I mean, it was just a huge, big seller, but awful. And I said, I can do better than that because <laughs> this guy's going to be an interesting guy. So I wrote the screenplay and, uh, you know, didn't get made, but, you know, sold it. And, um, and But it's been bugging me now uh, that maybe, you know, I'll write the novel. I don't know. I'm toying with it. But you, th- you think you can get it right. That's the thing. That's the same thing with Burton is that you looked at it and said, people haven't really uh, captured the guy as he must have been, you know, from his point of view. They, they look at him from the outside a lot. Uh, Mountains of the Moon, which is in many ways a good movie, I always thought just sort of got him wrong. Mm. And uh, I think that's really interesting. I, I, and now that it comes to me, I think one of my... It's a movie, but one of my favorite kind of historical films that kind of attempted to fictionalize somebody's life in a vague way was Mm -hmm. Sweet and Lowdown, the Woody Allen movie about Django Reinhardt. Right. It's essentially about a fake character who who might be Django Reinhardt, even though, I guess, for purposes of perhaps uh, copyright infringement or Mm -hmm. they, you know... Reinhardt becomes a character that's in the movie, mm-hmm. but uh, kind of vaguely. But I think that there's something about stories like that 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 you could only tell as a novel. I was thinking about it. You know, one of my favorite um, Hollywood figures of all time is Bela Lugosi. Uh huh. And it would just be frigging impossible to write a nonfiction book about his life at this point. I mean, he's been dead 60 years. And anybody who knew him is probably dead. I mean, like... Well, there's a lot of research, and you could write it. And, and you know, but, but the, you're, you're right to say you're better off with a novel. Because, again, you know, we think of Bella Lugosi right. and, and the cape and the makeup. But the real Bella Lugosi, you know, is a guy with a wife and a family... Yeah. And you know, and and he's an immigrant. I think and, the closest and, you'll ever get to a biopic on him is Ed Wood, right, where right. you know you just kind of see him at the end of his life, and he's, yeah, you know, he's a shell of a superstar, you know. So, but if you took Bella Lugosi, the guy, and then put him in a situation that that uh, required him to you know sort of act on his own without a script, a, a real life situation in a novel. 
you know, and and you could play off of the image of him as this as this uh, uh, vampire and and all this. You could you could have a lot of fun. It's not the worst idea well, in the well, world. Well, this is something that, <laughs> and I don't know, I I don't want to get too far off track because you yeah. we, we're having a good time. But you know what? Um, I guess I have to bring this up because I have no other place where I would. I was listening to for this is going to sound so crazy, but I think of crazy things. Uh, I am a writer. I try to. So sometimes like I need to research crazy things. But I was really you're going to laugh. I was really interested recently if the wrestler Macho Man Randy Savage, Mm -hmm. who passed away in 2011, Mm -hmm. if his family still made money off the Slim Jim endorsement, who Slim Jim, the beef jerky uh, snack that you get at the the Mm -hmm. gas station, Mm -hmm. uh, they're still using his image. Well, then they're making money. So what I was trying to figure out is who's the person making the money. He had no children. He had a brother who died, I believe, recently. So so, so to, the point I was trying to say is I went to a podcast where they were talking about this Slim Jim deal, which was evidently, I had no clue, one of the biggest deals in wrestling history. Okay. And millions and millions of dollars passed through. And uh, it's one of those deals that made wrestling almost on the same level as other sports Mm. the deal was so big so um you know i go to eric bischoff's podcast and i'm saying to myself he's a producer of wcw wrestling promotion and this guy's got hundreds of episodes of this podcast right and i'm not trying to discredit podcasts but how much of everything he says could be accurate you know what I'm saying? Like how much of what happened, you know, people are talking about intricacies of contracts and he's like, that's not how it happened. That's not how it happened like this. And it's just like, while I'm sure there's about 75% certainty, you know, you're accessing this memory 30 years later. You know what I mean? Like, so the point is I, as a writer who's spent all of my published life in nonfiction, and I have on one or two occasions really tried to re- retrace people's steps and roots and things like that. I would find that impossible. But a guy like you has taken uh, Richard Francis Burton from 1852 and made it this lifelike character that jumps off the book here. Even in some of the reading here, there's this vivid, vivid imagery. What gives you the confidence to do that? Is it just that you've been? Is it just that you've been doing it this long and you know you can? Because I, I think as a writer, maybe along the way you f- feel like you can't do things until you just do them by mistake. Well, you're right. You every day you wake up and you feel you, you feel like you can't do it. Every time you start a new screenplay or novel or play, I write plays sometimes. You you go. I have no idea how to do this. I mean, literally none. And uh, you. St- but I do know how to how to sit down and try, because I've done that a lot. I've written thirty five full length screenplays, wow, and and other than TV, you know, scripts, and so I I know how to work, and and but I don't really know what I'm doing. Is <laughs> is it still the same way? Again, I I only know from reading about it and maybe talking to the mm-hmm. handful of people that I know that have, have written a screenplay. Mm-hmm. But I would just think that in a day where, you know, streaming and all this is so ubiquitous and the content needs to come out much faster, 
is it still the old school 100 people touch the screenplay before it gets produced and is it still that or is it maybe there's a core group of five writers or is it the I don't really know very much about the streaming world I know you know generally well I, I, think, I just mean yeah. that you know yeah, Hulu think, Netflix right. they're producing their own stuff now well know? actually that's a, a misconception and to some extent mostly I think that you know, Hulu and Netflix is they they make deals with production companies that are doing the production. They supervise and finance. Right, but, right. But I think that um, I think with streaming, they very much rely on a showrunner, who's the who's, you know the main writer producer, and then a, a staff of writers, and they rewrite each other. So. The staff all will have a say in each episode, even though one or two get credit on the episode because they're the main writers. But uh, And that's how it always was in, in mostly in network TV. Movies are different. Movies is where you get, you write the screenplay, you write a second draft, you get fired, <laughs> uh, they bring in somebody else, they write a draft or two, a director gets attached, the director wants a new writer... That goes on and on and on. Again, and on. are there? Uh, I, again, I don't know how you work or, or, mm-hmm. or how exactly it happens with you, but um, have there been movies? You might have ND, uh, D, uh, N, DNAs, NDAs. Oh no, I have uh, no NDAs. But um, yeah, have there been movies that have been produced that you wrote? Yeah, dra- you wrote drafts of, but you're not listed as the writer. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure, and it, it's okay to say I did. I mean, I didn't write them. I mean, I officially did not write them. Right, right, right. Um, although, well, there's one I didn't want credit. <laughs> <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 17. I, 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 and that was me. I should have taken the credit because you live on your credits. And, right. And uh, even if, you know. Uh, but are, I, are you embarrassed to say what it was? No, no. It's called uh, In the Eye of the Snake, okay. starring Malcolm McDowell. Okay. Uh, and I, for other reasons, I chose not to take credit. I, 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 it was a rewrite, so. I see. But I would have anyway. I wrote a draft of a movie called Wild Thing with Rob Nepper and Betty Buckley. You wouldn't know it. It was is a decent movie. John Sayles rewrote me. Wow. So the I rewrote the original writer, and John Sayles rewrote me. And frankly, I didn't deserve credit. He completely rewrote it. Right. So fair enough. Um. I, with a partner, we rewrote uh, The Nest, is about flesh-eating roaches, a Corman movie. Yes, I think I know this one. Really? Yeah. <laughs> My partner. Roger was, Corman. Yes, right? Roger yes. Corman. So Terry Winkless directed it, yes. and he and I had worked together a few times, and we did that. It was a lot of fun, very quick and a lot of fun. And uh, so there, there are a few others like that. And yeah. just to to be quite honest, I don't know the answer, but to qu- clarify more for yeah. may- maybe those in the MFA community listening, sure. the young writers, do you get paid for these drafts? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, you get paid. I mean, well, uh, or uh, is it yes a chunk? and no? Yeah. I mean, no. I mean, the nest next to nothing. Right, but I mean, um, is it when you do a draft for what becomes out to be a big movie yeah. or whatever, is it is it a chunk or is it a couple hundred thousand or well it varies by the person by your credit right. by the situation the, oh, there's an old formula that they that used to exist and I don't think it's really relevant now because budgets have gone so crazy that it used to be the writers total get 3 to 5% of the budget wow so in the old days when a movie was a million dollar movie 
it was fifty thousand, and that's but they might pay the initial writer thirty, and then somebody else ten, and somebody else ten. Right. In those days, so now you've got to multiply that by a hundred. Right. Right. So there's there's a lot of money going, but so when it's like a Marvel movie. Who knows what they do? Right. I don't. I really don't know those figures or anything about how that's done because I was never involved at all. Um, but uh, you know, you get your. That's what agents are for. They're good at it. They get you. You know. Yeah. As a screenwriter, you've yeah. created these worlds, and um, usually, when it's a novelist selling his novels. Mm-hmm. Not every day, but usually, I mean, again, Robert B. Parker, good example. Uh, they made, you know, 11 TV, TV movies out of Jesse Stone. Sure. And they made dead, many different iterations of Spencer. I don't think he wrote any of them uh, right. or just kind of helped out right. a little bit. How do you feel now that you've had this mirror, the mirrored palace option? Mm-hmm. Is it something you'd want to be involved on, on the screenplay level? Is that is that reality for you? Or do you are you one of those writers who says, all right. I'm I'm optioning it, so now I don't have to worry about it because it's not mine anymore. In this case, uh, one of the things was that I wanted to write the pilot, and I'm going to write it with one of the producers who is also a writer. Wow. And uh, uh, I've known him for a long time. He's a smart guy, and I was glad to do it. Uh, but uh, I can see where in with other things that I've written uh, – I would just sell them and let it go. Uh, it depends on, you know, it just depends where your head is at. As much, I mean, you want the payday, of course. But also, you know, you're a writer. You're only going to be able to write for this long and, and do these things. If, if there's something else you want to do, then let somebody else do that. You'll get money anyway. Right. Um, but I don't, I don't know. You know, it's in an hour I might give you a different answer. No, I, <laughs> I, I could completely understand that, too. What I wanted to ask you before we let you go, because you've been great. I, this is the, this may end up being an entire episode in itself oh, because be great. we've had, we've had such a fun time talking here, and we do have, um, I think we have some other people that might stop by to do some poetry readings or something oh, for this cool. episode. But we'll see, we'll see how it plays out. So don't don't hold me to that, listeners. Okay. Don't hold me to that. But uh, <laughs> I, I think it might be, with something like this. How much did you want to get right in the historical details of the book? How much of it is you know, it took a lot of research on top of kind of cradling your, your plot in your mind. Oh, you've got to get the historical details right. And I, I like doing it. Well, in this one, is, you know, an advantage and a problem is Burton has the journals. Mm-hmm. So you, his route is the real route is fixed in history. Now, I gave him, he cut off that route. And went a different way for reasons of drama, and uh, and it I think it works, and you know it's it's fine, but it had to be uh, fixed in reality. A big part of it, he died in Trieste, so I had to research Trieste uh, in 1890. Yeah, and uh, and really go into that and and uh, get that right, and I hope I did. Um, that kind of stuff's very important. You said something, and I think this will be our last question today. You said something before we started recording, and if you don't want to share it, we could delete it now. But you said something about you were, I don't think we caught it at the top of the show. You said something that you were 
you were dealing with one agent. You talked about this book for a long time. You ended up going and moving on your own to try and get the book published. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Could you talk a little, you know, I think that that is the type of thing. And you teach in the MFA program here at WestCon, so you, you probably know what the students are interested in. But I think that that's, for some of our writer writer listeners, you know, just talk about that process. You, you're an experienced writer. You've got television credits. You have published novels. And your agent is saying no. Yeah, it's no fun. Um, it, 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 it was a big lesson for me because in, in the movie business, uh, your agent will take, sometimes your agent will, will just reject a screenplay, but you'll rewrite it. Usually there'll be some talk, you rewrite it. If it's a good idea, and you can get the agent to send it out at least a little bit, depending on the situation. But I have the, the agent who sold my first two novels is very good at her job and smart and efficient. And uh, I gave her uh, a new novel and uh, before this, and uh, she just said no. Would you describe your first two novels as more digestible than this, like easier to go down? Yes, right, right. Yes, they're they're you know thrillers, right? I'm in thriller style. That's cool though, and yeah. and this is quite different. Right, yeah, right. This. It, and it, it does remind me a lot of Peter Blauner's new book because uh-huh. he kind of makes that jump um, from where he was really just recently doing mm-hmm. a New York City police character for two books. And mm-hmm. then he kind of switches over to the more complex uh, picture in the sand. Mm-hmm. But tell me a little, before I let you go, yeah. tell me a little bit about what's what's kind of next now. You've written this novel. You've gotten it off your back. If, you know, in the in the... Not in the peripheral, but more in the... What are you moving forward to next? I've just finished a new novel. Again, very, very different. And uh, Similar to the first two or no? No, no, no not like anything. Uh, a couple of friends have read it, and uh, they're in their first comments. I've never read anything like this before. And uh, I'm going to try and write the pilot also. Wow. And then... So I've got a little bit more work to do on the novel and make some changes... And uh, uh, having started the pilot, I can see some changes to be made in the, in the novel. And uh, I'll get it out there in the world. I'd really, really like the idea. I'm a little shy of telling it to you on the air. It's okay. But uh, so I'm really, you know, in love with it. No, that, that, that's interesting. And the, the one thing I just wanted to touch on, though, yeah. when you're writing these screenplays and your agent is sending them out, mm-hmm. you know, what... How much of that influences when you write these scripts that, as you said, there have been some that have gone nowhere. Mm-hmm. How much of that has influenced you as a novelist? How much of it is like reverse? You say, all right, I couldn't get the screenplay published, but I bet you I can get the novel out there. Has that ever worked your way? Or? Oh, yeah. Well, that's how that's how the first novel came about. You know, I, I thought I'm going to pitch this story and uh, my agent's going to say no. And if I pitch it to a kind, you know, I didn't see any producers that... Uh, would really want it. I thought, unless I, producers like it, you know, uh, everything's a system. They have to sell to their bosses, whether, even if the the guy runs the, you know, owns the production company, he's got to go sell to Netflix or to Paramount or whoever it is, right? And if he has something in hand that someone else has taken a chance on, it's easier for him. That's why they make movies from books quite often. Because the book exists as something people can go, ah, this is real. So 
that's why I wrote it. And, uh, yeah. No, I like this one. I, I, I like what you've got going here. Great. Thank and I'm you. really looking forward to the next thing. I warned this already, but this is the final question. We, we, we sometimes ask writers who come on. It seems like you're well-read, and we, we sometimes write at, uh, ask writers who come on to give us a book recommendation by something they didn't write. Huh. And even if it's just the last thing you read or something that you, you, you say, hey, I, you know, I read it, I enjoyed it so much, I wish more people knew about this book. Well, the first one that comes to mind is one that a lot of people do know. You might have read it. It's Brighton Rock by Graham Greene. No. I've oh, never my read. God. I, I know of Graham Greene. You never get over that one. Yeah, huh? That one. I've never gotten over it. <laughs> um, and then uh, something also that you might enjoy that people stopped reading for some reason. Uh, Len Dayton. You know Len Dayton? No, I don't. Oh, my. He's a spy writer. So he started with Ipcris File, which is good. Yes, my dad loved the Ipcris File. Right, loved the movie. Yes. Yes. But, and, then, and then Funeral in Berlin. But then he went into the uh, Bernard Sampson novels. I think there's nine of them. And I, I believe I've read all nine at least twice. Wow. So, and, and really enjoyable. He's a great, really excellent writer. So I would recommend those. Great tip. David Rich, author of The Mirrored Palace, out now from... Adelaide Books. He said it better than I did. <laughs> From the Public Reading Club, 91.7 WXCI and streaming live on WXCI.org, this was a reading from David Rich from his book, The Mirrored Palace. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back here on the Public Reading Club. This is Matt Caputo from the WXCI Studios. 91.7 in Danbury, Connecticut. We are streaming live on WXEI.org. For the first time, uh, we one of our guests here on the Public Reading Club is not a professional writer in the sense or a full-time writer, but he is probably one of the most prolific readers I've ever heard of. His name is Ron Evans. He's actually an alumnus of Western Connecticut State University, where we are right now on that campus. And he's here today because he is a buddy of mine from the local hockey games. And this summer, I, I wanted to have him on because he completed the very impressive feat of reading every Stephen King book that the author has ever published. Ron, welcome to the show. How many books is that? I think that's 76 now after Fairy Tale. Ron. So. This is great. You know, I've been, I haven't been on to this side of the campus since 2000, and it's great to have a college campus. This wasn't here when I was here. We fought for parking spots. It was Whitehall, a decrepit library, and, you know, maybe a science center. So this is crazy how great everything is. I'm, I've listened to this radio station. We were the epicenter of music <laughs> back in the mid-'90s. Thurston Moore called Danbury the next Seattle. <laughs> Fortunately, that didn't happen, but it's so great to be at the epicenter of where all this was happening. Uh, Ron, just uh, what year did you finish school here? 2000, and then I did my MBA in 2005. Wow, so. that's cool. And you live in New, New, New Milford. Milford. New Milford yeah. now. So, it, listen, it's really great to have you on the show. Uh, just a little backstory. Ron's a good buddy of mine. We talk all the time. Uh, I really respect just his knowledge of literature, but not only that, his kind of constant pursuit of reading. And, uh, you know, Ron, I, I wanted to get into with you um, a bunch of kind of questions that just kind of naturally come to my mind. But I wanted to ask you what, you know, what kind of 
drew you into Stephen King's work, and what was your original introduction, and how long did how long would you say it took you to complete all this? Well, as a product of the '70s, it came from a divorced family, so <laughs> my mom was a huge horror fan. She brought me to see Friday the Thirteenth on opening night. I was probably four at the time. Wow! And then she always had paperback novels of Stephen King laying around, so I. I picked up Pet Cemetery and for some reason never threw it away, never wanted to read it. I was scared to death of horror. And then one day, seventh grade, um, ran out of Hardy Boy books to read and decided, let me just give this a, a, a listen <laughs> or, or a read. And I couldn't put it down. It was just the imagery and just the way he brought things out. I was like, wow, this is impressive stuff. Wow. And it was like I, I finished Pet Cemetery in like a week and a half. And this is, mind you, seventh grade, you know, timing. So so what year was it about? 1989. Wow. May so, of 89. So by that time, he was pretty prominent, right? I mean, Yeah, he had like at least 11, 12 under, I think, two gunslinger books done. And movies, that probably some movies. Pet Cemetery was due to come out that summer. So maybe that's why I read it, to just get ahead of the horror movie. Because I was a huge <laughs> horror movie fan. Yeah, so yeah. So I was like... Oh, let me read this before the movie comes out. And then after reading the book and then going to see the movie, the movie was awful, in my opinion, after <laughs> the book. But it's grown on me now. I guess this leads me into a question that I was going to ask a little later on. But, you, you, you know, opportunity presents itself here. What is your favorite Stephen King adaptation from uh, book to film? It, 2017. Wow. I mean, the ABC series wasn't bad in 1990, but... To give it an R rating, and you can get more risky with how Pennywise is in real life. He kills kids, yeah. and ABC's not going to show him killing kids on a you know a network broadcast in right. 1990. So when they did that, I was blown away. Here's what I was also blown away with: the adaptation of um, the first one was the 50s. Well, they bring Stephen King's 2017 it film 1989. I was blown away because I'm like. This is when I was first introduced to it. I read it over the summer of 89. Wow. And now I'm watching it on film, like, and these kids are, like, listening to New Kids on the Block. And they're <laughs> doing all these 80s stuff. I'm like, this is awesome. This is exactly where I was, full circle. And I think that some people who don't, you know, I'm sure there are people that have come on this show that aren't as familiar because maybe they view Stephen King as being very commercial. But I think... Because of the television and the films in the 80s and 90s, you know, coming from his work, I don't think that most people know how dark his stuff really is. Oh, it's it's very dark. There's yeah. no such thing as a happy ending in a Stephen King book. None. Because uh, it's, you know, you think, oh, well, you know, I was uh, Cujo. The kid lives in Cujo in the movie. So I watched the movie a long time ago. So when I'm reading the book. I'm like, oh, well, Tad's going to live. No, Tad died. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> and you spoiler know what? alert. I, I've got to be honest. I, I read different seasons and a bunch of his stuff in the high school years. And um, I think that for some reason, I really appreciated what a great storyteller he was when I read Colorado Kid. Not uh, because. Yeah. You know, not because it's so it's it's completely imperfect. I mean, the whole book is it, it's if you're not if you're not caught up in it, you're irritated by it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and um, but there was something for me that's like this guy is just trying to make this story work and to tell this weird tale that that just kind of makes you think. And um, I wonder how much of that. 
you found in the rest of his work that kind of that kind of what do you think of this at the end if you look at stephen king he's always done offshoots he was richard bachman for he got found out yeah he tried pulp fiction because he read those as a kid so he's like oh let me delve into that while i can and you know he's always done a little offshoot. he's done a, a book on the red sox 2004 the whole yeah. season with his friend Stuart onan so he's done little things, and I, to me, he's gotten better with age. Yeah. Huh? So one, another weird one that he wrote, speaking of the Red Sox, was what was it, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon? Yes. What was that one actually about? It was a girl that got lost in the woods, yeah. and she thinks an entity's chasing her, and really, I think in reality, she just is hallucinating, and it's a black bear she kills, but in her mind, it's like an entity that's chasing her through the woods, and the way she kills it is by gearing up and throwing rock fastballs. <laughs> like, yeah, like that. Yeah. And and if you think about it in the context of, I mean, c- kind of any normal person, like I don't think that any regular writer would have gotten away with calling it the girl loves Tom Gordon. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, he also cursed Tom Gordon because yeah. Tom Gordon goes to play on the Yankees when they played him again in 2004 and was so uh, ganged up he's throwing up in the bullpen at Fenway and can't pitch. Yeah. So. King there was a curse a, there. A there was some him. voodoo he put on him. <laughs> it was voodoo baseball. Uh, but ultimately, let me ask you something. Have you ever been to his house in Maine? Have you ever no, gone? Up too no, too far of a ride. No, <laughs> I, I went to Maine in '99. I was like, I, I think I got a book on tape. I'm like, all right, I'm going to listen to a book on tape on the way just to get in the vibe of Maine and Stephen King. But you know, what's funny is I kind of stumbled upon Bridgeton, Maine, which is actually where he lives. Yeah, and he—I guess he writes out of a warehouse. I saw the bookstore where he goes to, walking on lunch. Really, the thing is, is if you see him in Maine, do not approach him. Do not talk. They all kind of have this unspoken word that you don't fanboy Stephen King in Maine. That's the way he wants it. But I've seen a lot of people. They take I think the extra four hours to go out to Bangor, Maine. I think that's where his mansion is to see that. So he's never usually there. He's not. He doesn't live there. Wow. So I was one of the suckers who took a photo outside and thought I was at his house. Well, he did live there. Yeah. No, it is his place, and he doesn't know what to do with it anymore. But yeah, he does. He does go to that. But he also, I think, he spends a lot of time in Sarasota, Florida now too. That's right. I think that's probably where Duma Key came out of. Yeah. I was like, where, where did he get the inspiration for the Florida contingent? But yeah, that makes perfect sense. You know, Ron, one of the many things I respect about you, though, is is kind of the prolific nature in which you you went through his whole catalog here. And I want to ask you, maybe usually people would ask you what I'm about to ask you in reverse, but I want to ask you. What are your least favorite Stephen King books? You say, ah, just didn't do it for me. I got uh, two right off the bat. Tommy Knockers. W- yeah. 1985. W- he was on Coke. <laughs> That's why that book, book sucked. And I think even he would go on record and say that that wasn't his best work. Uh, why they made a movie on that, I don't know. The movie was just as bad as the book. Was it called Tommy Knockers? Tommy Knockers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what was that actually about? I guess a woman goes out into her backyard, finds a spaceship and touches it and it's like a biorhythm and she actually i think it's like one of the first ones where she's a a lot of his books his main characters are writers well she goes back to her house and suddenly her ward processor can pick up her thoughts and write the story for her without typing yeah but it it was just so off the realm it was awful what was was johnny depp in one where he's a writer yes um secret window secret Secret window oh what a great that was a good movie yeah, too. Yeah, that was. That's a short story, but yes. just as good. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people know. Um, I actually once got into a fist fight with a guy. Jeez, over a book? 
Yeah, who said that um, it wasn't the Shawshank Redemption was based like on a true story, like it was like a. It was based in a little bit of truth, but it wasn't like a verbatim, like nonfiction type of a thing. Huh? No, I haven't heard that. No, this was an argument I got with some clown, but <laughs> I don't think that most people know that um, apt pupil, the body. Shawshank Redemption. Rita Hayworth. And what's the fourth one? It was Shawshank Redemption. I think it was called the Rita Hayworth in the book. No, it was called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. That's okay. But what was the fourth one in that? Uh, Stand by me, the body. Well, that was the body. Apt pupil. Yeah. Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. What's the fourth one? Oh, this is going to bother me now. The breathing method. The breathing method, yeah. Yeah. That, that one, I don't think I... If I read it, I read it a little bit. doesn't time ago. stick with me. I read that in 89 as well. <laughs> and that was mostly for Stand By Me. I love that. That was one of my favorite movies. So tell me, what about, you know, just the last, um, what's your what's your favorite recent book of his? Um, it's probably the trilogy, the Mr. Mercedes. That I couldn't put down. It really? was great. And the show is amazing, too. There's a show there, on that there's now. There's three seasons of the show, and that was just crazy. That it, was some good stuff. Almost all of his stuff. And that's made his character, Holly, is now more prominent than ever in the Stephen King universe. Now, that's going to be his next book coming out September 5th. Cheap plug, Steve. Pay me. So Holly's coming out, and it's just going to be based on her. And that was all out of the Mr. Mercedes trilogy. I think it's Mr. Mercedes, Finders Keepers. Finders Keepers, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was really good. Have you read those? No, you know I, I really haven't caught up on the new stuff like I wish I had. So most of the time I'm I'm trying to catch up on the old stuff. You know we had Peter Blowner on here, um, you know prolific novelist and, and and writer. He said that his favorite Stephen King was Bag of Bones. Oh okay. You know yeah. so ghost, ghost story. <laughs> yeah, you know so it's it, it's like you know people bring things up and just as you said here, the universe of Stephen King is just so big um, that that you know you, you hear about a book and then it leads into oh maybe i'd like the series of that too yeah. you know so there's there's a lot of dedication when it comes and that's why it's so impressive that you've read every book what was the other one you didn't like said tommy knockers was another one from a buick eight what was that about it was about a, a a car that's in a garage and it's supposed to be bigger than christine but it like goes through all these morphs and stages it did not keep me at all Apparently, it was supposed to be a movie that Tobe Hooper, who did uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, was signed up to direct, but never saw the, never got greenlighted. But I'm kind of happy it did. Maybe, maybe the movie would have gave the book justice, but in my opinion, I, I didn't like it at all. Wow. But you know, if Stephen King, he's like a tsunami. If you don't keep up with him, next thing you know, you're five, six behind. <laughs> That's yeah. How quickly he was. I heard he was going to retire and. 2002. Well, this guy's still putting out books. No, yeah, he's still going pretty hard. Tell me, um, what do you think you? I, I guess in the deeper meaning, what what does his work mean to you? What What do you think you learn from it? Is it just entertainment to you, or is there some type of? It hits on a lot of different levels. For me, it's a horror. Um, just the humanity of people and how dark people can be. You got. It's almost like a. You, you can watch out you can watch your back yeah. basically but also he's got a lot of themes with religion 
and he's kind of scared of religion. He makes religion scary. Whoever his people who are in these books who are religious in general, they are just evil people, like Carrie's mom and Carrie. Piper Laurie played her so well in that movie adaptation. Like, I'm, I think that's probably my, my favorite Stephen King villain. It's Piper wow. Laurie, and she's, like, ultra-religious, but yeah. very scary at the same time, so... There's a lot of themes with Stephen King. There's a lot of religion based. Well, yeah, you, you know, when scared of it. before the supernatural comes into play, there's usually kind of like um, power and authority related to religion that he kind of, yeah. you know, builds up to, you know, builds up with, I guess you would say. Yeah. Um, tell me what, you know, um, how, how much of Stephen King, well, I guess it's really the last couple of years you only had to read one book a year or something like that. Yeah, now I'm I'm at well. Now you're at zero, but I'm this, at zero, but it'll be over in a month from now when Holly drops, and I won't read that till June. I I devote a full month to Stephen King. Wow. I'll write down what I need to catch up on. I still got to catch the Stan miniseries. Yeah, I'm a freak. So even the television, <laughs> even the television, even the include. television. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. You've got that old school swagger about you, Ron. You really do, dude. You're like the Stephen King guy, the big sports guy. You know what I mean? You're. Oh, I've got so many hobbies. This yeah. Is one of them. No, but, yeah, yeah, dude. And you're a prolific Danbury hockey fan for sure, and a, a great reader. Uh, listen, I, you know, it, is there anything about Stephen King's work do you think that? Um, People have overlooked over the years. I mean, he has so much stuff. You think there's one that people ever has a little bit of a universal appear that maybe is not as talked about as much. This guy is so popular. The fan pages. I don't know if and and I've been on them. And you think I'm hardcore? There's fans that are correcting me to like the tenth degree. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, dude, I don't have all that time to like dissect it. But I don't know. Um, if you want to get into the Stephen King universe, the Gunslinger series, because he brings all of his universes in at some point. You'll see Pennywise. You'll see. It's it's pretty interesting how he brings it all in on that in that um, seven book series. I think it's eight now, seven or eight. But that's tough. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. But he's so popular, and, and there's so many fans of his that I don't think there's stuff that hasn't been overturned. Do you know if he like? I wonder if. It might be a, a mute question, but you might not be on that level with it. But do you know if he has stuff that just hasn't been released yet? Oh, like, God, I'm sure there has. Yeah. I mean, he's got a, a story. Mr. Mercedes, they, they kill a, a well-known author, and they kill him because he won't release his unreleased stuff in the uh, bank vault he's got. So I have a feeling that Stephen King is going to be relevant 30 years after his death because even Michael Crichton had four projects that were sitting in his desk that after his death came out to light. So, I mean, the way this guy writes and how much he writes, there's no telling how much stuff he's probably sitting on. Ron Evans is our guest today on the Public Reading Club from WXCI 91.7 in Danbury, Connecticut and streaming on WXCI.org. Ron, any parting parting words about Stephen King? What, you know, maybe uh, just a, if you could send a message to Stephen through our airwaves, because we know he listens to the Public Reading Club, definitely. Oh yeah, he, he's listen, He's actually in the parking lot now. He's waiting. caught up. I've been. You know what? I I don't know if he's ready to come on the show yet, but you know what I'm saying. Maybe when you know he puts out a few more books, and you know. <laughs> Yeah, when he's doing his publicity tour, Westcon is now on his map. He's coming here. How would you feel if you met him? 
I always wanted to go to a Red Sox game, give the uh, usher a hundred bucks, and see if I could get close enough to talk to him. But I'm sure he's not gonna like. He's not gonna be well received. And he's put that in his short stories, like, "Hey, constant reader, love you, but don't come near me." Yeah. <laughs> but my my parting message to this, and I hope this gets me. It's my favorite book by him is Salem's Lot. They're gonna do the R-rated treatment for Salem's Lot that they did for it. And apparently that's sitting on a shelf somewhere in Hollywood. I hope that gets made and brought out to the movie theater soon because that's going to blow away any vampire story you've seen out there. He certainly had the best of both worlds, if you think about it. All those miniseries and TV stuff in the 80s, it was so conservative back then, you couldn't have put half of the stuff in a movie anyway. So you might have just given people like a sample of it, and then now we're in the most extreme times. Marijuana's legal, so's prostitution, all this other stuff. Everything in his book you're not supposed to do is now fine. (laughs) You know, so I I, I really, you know, Stephen King, is he's probably going to have an even bigger comeback than we He's always relevant, but, you know, I, I, I think that because of just what you said, there's R-rated versions of kind of some of his miniseries and some of his books that came out in the past that could be put out now. I mean, I still love The Needful Things. Oh, I still love yeah. Thinner. I still love, uh, I mean, we've seen. He did a book on a, a, a classroom getting shot up. Yeah, he did. I mean, that was, I don't think you can even find that in print now. I don't think they'd ever release no. that. Yeah. He's had a lot, and, and like, there's stuff. He's had a JFK book, right? Yes. Yeah, there's, like, yeah. a JFK. JFK that, didn't die. That was a. That was really James good. James Franco, wasn't he in the yes, miniseries or something? Yes, he did the, he did the or miniseries, yeah. yeah. But that, that's another thing, it's just. Stephen King, it, the crazy thing about him is how he's been able to do stuff like that, like almost the way like a journalist would. A journalist goes through the decades, if, if you make it that long, and you kind of, you get to write about these kind of big things, or you get to write, you know, you, you, well, he finally got around to doing something about the Kennedy assassination. He finally got around to, you know, doing tons of stuff about the Red Sox. And, yes. you know, so he, he's really lived that uh I don't want to say privilege, but it's it's a it's an earned privilege. It's a right. You know, mm-hmm. he definitely paid his dues. It's amazing, and uh, you know, one of the things is here in the MFA program. I I'll be honest with you. I don't think there's enough credence given to people like a Stephen King. I mean, again, he's producing and he's staying in his little shell, and like I don't think he. You know, I I could be wrong, but I don't think he needs a lot of the. Um, I don't know, the smoke and mirrors and stuff that kind of comes with studying writing or being a writer. It's like he probably just sits down there and says, hey, I'm I, you know, and he's a millionaire now, too. So it's he can follow. He's got the time to follow any idea for a week and he could probably write a thousand pages and he could probably write 200 pages a week. I've talked to other authors. They they say they can't compete with this. guy. No way. Because he's just so disciplined in how he writes that you have to put your life on hold. And the truth is, is like, you know, he's had winners and losers, but he's a commercial type of author, writing commercial books, and I think that, it, it, you know, that that separates him from a lot of people because we we celebrate a lot of authors in this country that only I, it's hard. Listen, it's hard as hell to write one book. Let me be the first person to stand up and put my hand in the air and say. It is hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to write a book. It's hard to fund yourself while you're writing a book if you're serious about writing. Some people can come home after work and write that fiction novel just just like that. But I think if you're doing a lot of reporting, I mean, 
this kid Pat, our engineer here, he he's seen me. Um, definitely at times when adult people should be working, I'm following around the Danbury hockey team trying to write a book. Yes, I'm. And I've been on that road with you. Right, and, and I've gone. I you know I, I've gone halfway down the east coast when adults should be working you know what i mean and and i've i've uh you know and i so ultimately it's hard to write a book but i also think there's a lot of jazz that could just fill your head and want and the hardest part of being a writer is getting past that noise right. and getting past that noise in your head that that's like oh you really can't do it or this is a special assignment or it's it's too big or it's daunting to to, to Put this down on the page. You just have to sit and start to get through the drafts over and over until you have something. And I'm sure that's what Stephen King does. I can just see him tinkering away, you know, making himself a sandwich, uh, you know, uh, you know, as high as a fire hydrant, and just sitting there and and going well, at it, you know. It's funny. He listens to thrash metal. <laughs> I don't think he smokes anymore, but I mean, he probably he did back in the day. <laughs> he did for back sure. in the day. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, that's how he gets into his zone and just does it. But, I mean, finding your, when you love and you're passionate about a subject, writing is, just comes. I, I don't often, I, I actually even hate to bring this up now, but I think it's fair. You know, and I don't even want you to, you know, I'd rather you probably just keep your own politics to yourself. But I know that he oh. gets, <laughs> he gets really political and stuff like that, but. I think a lot of the time, again, you know, people probably... You know, there's the cancel culture out there, and, and and there's all this other stuff. But, you know, I think a lot of the time, he he does kind of advocate for the people, you know, a little more than a lot of celebrities do. You right. know, I never noticed it until Trump got elected, and then he just came full force. Like, yeah. Wow. This, no, he well, he it wouldn't be the first one. No. <laughs> yeah. He definitely didn't vote Republican yeah. in that last election. That's no. For sure. I bet he did in the '80s. I mean, like, he, he probably did some, you know, a lot of people probably were like Reagan Republicans and all that stuff. And I, you know, I, um, you know, not to, you know, you know, as, as I, I would consider my dad even a little more liberal than, than me when he was alive. And, um, yeah, even my dad voted for Reagan the first time, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So it's, it's ultimately, you know, times change, but I, I, I think he's actually endured that very well, Stephen King. In some ways yeah i think um the book sleeping beauties was almost a book he wrote against trump because of how trump treated women oh uh, yeah sleeping beauties is about women going away what are you going to do without women yeah and so i think that was a major and he wrote that with his son owen and that wasn't his greatest work by any means but i think it was try to get owen on the page but i mean you want you want to talk stephen king go joe hill that'll be my next yeah monument. that's his son that guy has got some talent have you scratched the surface i with have his? not even scratched it only his comic books he's done a lot of um graphic novels mm -hmm. and his work is preserved he tried to bring tales of the dark side back wow that got shelved but then he got green lighted for nosferatu on i think it was one of the cable channels and that was a pretty good series that was two seasons worth so, I mean, I couldn't tell you every association that Stephen King has, but I do know that he does, you know, from what I hear, he does, you know, I mean, even Peter Blauner, you know, has gotten kind of some blurbs from him and stuff over the years. I, I, I probably think he's a good guy. I mean, he probably would be one of those guys that doesn't want to hang out with you for more than a half hour. Yeah. You know what I mean? Probably got his, his schedule and his thing to do, but, but, you know, I, I bet he's cordial enough. He seems like a nice guy. Um, 
Ron, here, here's a guy that if you met him, you talk music, you talk Red oh, yeah. Sox, he's probably going to dig it and talk your Baseball, yeah, probably big time. The moment you time. start talking about his books and stuff is probably the moment no you see interest. his back and yeah, his handlers telling you to go uh, grab another beer. I, I met Bill Murray one time, and it was very similar type of a thing, kind of like, hey, what's up? You know, I got to run around. Uh, and, and he's a nice, he was a very nice guy. You know, but uh, sometimes, and I can understand it too, it's like, there's a point where people approaching you to have small talk is just like, uh, you know, yeah. even me, I'm not famous in any way. And it's like after a while, it's like, uh, you know, it could be could be a little less of this. Yeah. And I have a talk show. Sometimes, uh, sometimes the old adage, never meet your heroes. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's true. There's only one or two guys that I can say I really feel that way about. I, I don't think I'll repeat it too much. Well, Herb Sorcher's one, right? He's the best. <laughs> Good friend of ours. Uh, Ron... Um, what's up next for Stephen King? Just tell him. Holly. Holly comes out September 5th, and it's from the Mr. Mercedes books. It's also, she was in The Outsiders. She's had a short story, so she is Stephen King's muse now. Mm. So if you don't like Holly, I'm, I have bad news for you. <laughs> I don't think she's going away in Stephen King's universe. Why don't you give us the, the little sketch of who she is? Uh, she's an eccentric uh, woman, but um, very smart and a good con uh, crime solver. So she um, killed the antagonist, well, badly impaired the antagonist in uh, Mr. Mercedes, but very good at finding out mysteries and solving things that other people just look over. The, 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 this generation's Nancy Drew. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good note to end on. <laughs> Ron, thanks so much for joining us Great, on the Public Reading me. Club, WXEI 91.7 and WXEI.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll check you guys again soon. So that was great, right? Having Ron Evans come on. He's a fantastic reader and uh, devourer of literature. It was fantastic to have him on the show. And uh, I do look forward to more book recommendations from people like Ron. And if there's anybody out there that does listen to the show and read, you're going to appreciate us because we'll talk about any book and we'll discuss anything. I don't have any recommendations that I want to share right this second. I'm going to do save that for the following show, but I do want to tell any of the listeners out there two things. We are now up on YouTube. So all of the previous episodes, there's uh, um, there's a previous seven uh, before this. You're, you're going to be able to listen to this one and all of them on YouTube now. They're already up there. We have interviews with Lawrence Block. We have interviews with uh, Reed Farrell Coleman and Peter Blauner. Um, also Ian McCallan and then Westcon people, including Anthony Dearis and Eric Afgang, come on. Those, those interviews are out there. Check it out, and we'll be having more. And like I said at the top of the show, we are going to gear it a little bit towards nonfiction for a while. I actually have two great guests that I'm excited about. We're going to have uh, Zeke Fox, uh, a reporter from Bloomberg, who recently released a book about a crypto crime called Number Go Up. I think it's going to be a smash hit. I'm predicting that this could be, you know, uh, perhaps even a movie, you know, with the crypto being so popular and uh, being so ubiquitous these days. You, I could see a film uh, coming from this book. So Zeke will be on in the next couple of episodes. And we've also scheduled um, a little sooner than that, John H. Richardson, the prolific Esquire uh, journalist who's really one of the best nonfiction writers in my mind in the last 50 to 100 years probably so it, it, it's really great 
to have these writers willing to come on, willing to share their own stories. And the best part about it is I don't think these discussions are happening elsewhere. So, uh, you know, we started off with some more seasoned writers, and uh, obviously John uh, H. Richardson is one of those, but it's also great to have a new book um, in number go up by Zeke Fox. And you know, to have him come on the show is going to be great because I hopefully that'll uh, connect us with uh, a different audience. So thanks so much for sticking with the show. If you've listened or if you've, if you've checked this out before, give us a like or a follow. That really does help. But we're going to continue to do this for a while. Uh, some of you may or may not know, I'm doing this show in conjunction with my MFA degree here at WestCon. And this is uh, essentially counting towards my internship. So we've had, uh, you know, all this time to kind of compile the show and we're going to keep going. So listen to the back episodes and stay and stay tuned because we're going to have at least one episode a month uh, moving forward from here and sometimes two if, if the opportunity arises. Thanks for tuning into the Public Reading Club from WXCI 91.7 in Danbury, Connecticut and streaming live on WXCI.org. Take care. Public Reading Club is a production of WXCI 91.7 Danbury Radio, hosted by Matt Caputo and produced by Pat Frenette and Matt Caputo.